Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California, Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi, Aaron. And third-year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Good evening, Aaron. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR School of Medicine. Well, on this episode, we're going to talk about one of our heroes. We do this occasionally on Let's Get Psyched. And in this instance, psychiatrist Dr. Marshall Forstein, who was in the trenches of the early struggles of the AIDS pandemic. And we're going to talk about that, about his experiences, and also some parallels maybe to for the COVID pandemic. Dr. Marshall Forstein has led Harvard's Cambridge Health Alliance Psychiatry Residency for 19 years. He's an associate professor at Harvard Medical School and has been a member of numerous HIV AIDS committees at local, state, and national organizations. Dr. Forstein was one of the first psychiatrists to publicly identify HIV as a sexually transmitted neuropsychiatric disease. He began treating persons with HIV AIDS at the beginning of the pandemic and continues to do so. Dr. Forstein is also a musician, playing folk music inspired by the likes of Joni Mitchell, did not know that about you, Dr. Forstein. <laughs> Dr. Forstein, thank you for being on Let's Get Psyched. I'm very flattered to be asked to be here. Uh, uh, one of the things I would like to kind of um, start out with is what was it like in that early stage? Because you were you were basically, I mean, you graduated medical school in 1980, and then uh, you went to an internship in San Francisco, and then you went back for residency in Boston in So what was it like in that beginning early time and then finding out, investigating, finding out what's going on, and then getting, uh, what was the reception when you were noticing some things about how it was being transmitted or how maybe to interfere with the transmission? What, what was it like with those, those early times with, when you were trying to sound the alarm? Well, let me, let me give a, <clears throat> excuse me, a little context, which is remember that the first cases really were described in 81, beginning of 81. But because of the fact that we could go back and look at banked blood from a hepatitis B study in San Francisco during the late 70s, we actually knew in 1984 when we had the test that blood that was given in the late 70s was already infected with HIV. We just didn't know it. So when I was an intern in San Francisco in 1980, about somewhere between 10 and 12 percent of the gay men, sexually active gay men, were already infected and had no clue about this illness about to jump on them. So in 1980, as, a, as an intern, I was concerned about all the things interns were concerned about. I had no clue that this is what we were gonna be dealing with. And actually when I got to uh, Boston as a resident was the first time I actually started reading the material that was coming out in the press. And we were beginning to talk about it at the organizational level. But just as a personal note, in 1980, when I met my husband, my future husband, um, I am fully aware that had I not met him in the early days of 1980, that I too might have succumbed to this epidemic. And so wow. it's a highly personal issue for me. And there are other things that I'll go into perhaps later, but I think it's really important to know that it's what we are passionate about that drives us. Uh, things that are important are important, but it's when you feel like it's life itself that's at stake, you end up 
I think, taking a whole different view and, and approach to things. So, you know, at the beginning, people thought this was a gay, it was called gay-related immune deficiency. It was a gay disease. Anybody who wasn't gay didn't have anything to worry about. And remember, this is at the height of what was called the sexual liberation movement. This was the first time, and it started obviously in San Francisco and New York and the bigger cities, where gay men were finally freed. This is now, remember, only seven or eight years after the diagnosis in the DSM was changed from pathological to a, a normal variant. So at the height of sexual liberation, where gay men were experimenting and experiencing their sexuality, we had no idea that this was haunting us from the background. Um, and I think that <clears throat> one of the reasons it became so hard to talk about it, even in the gay community, was the, the sense of betrayal that somehow we were trying to get them to change behaviors that they had just become really comfortable and uh, excited about having in their life, having lived most of their earlier life, repressing all of their sexual desires. Ellen. Dr. Forstein, um, oh, sorry, Marshall. <laughs> uh, as I'm hearing you talk about it, I'm hearing things differently than I've ever heard them before um, in the sense that there's this, I can see how one might be vulnerable to the narrative. see all kinds of horrible narratives coming up. Like we, we got our time to be liberated and look what, what happened or look what God did to us. Or, and I imagine a lot of people were kind of saying that I imagine that was the, that was a narrative. Um, was that we were talking earlier about whether the term gaslighting applies here um, and kind of being made to feel like there's this conspiracy of insanity going on around you. And maybe you yourself are insane. We were thinking about that in terms of you identifying or, or, or promoting HIV as, as something sexually transmitted and preventable. But what about the experience in general of this thing coming out that, that, I mean, were people buying this? Were, were gay folks buying this, that, oh, this is gay related. Somehow this is our fault. Maybe God is behind this. That's a really good question. And I think, you know, all sorts of conspiracy theories thrive on the lack of information and knowledge. And of course, we didn't even know what the virus was. And, you know, when I gave a talk in Boston in 1981 <clears throat> at Faneuil Hall to a group of gay, there were about a thousand gay men and women in the audience. Um, we were trying to say, I said, you know, this looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, walks like a duck. It's probably a duck, meaning this looks, the epidemiology was viral. Um, had it been casually transmitted, there would have been millions of people infected very rapidly, as we've seen with the pandemic of COVID, for instance, very different mode of transmission. And we had to look at the science. And as a, as a medical doctor, as a scientist, I was looking, what did we know and what don't we know? And what do we have to do to protect ourselves? I actually said at this meeting, my suggestion is we protect ourselves from any sexually transmitted disease, if this is in fact what's causing it in the hopes that we might have to curtail or change some of our sexual behaviors for a few years till we get a handle on this. But I would fully intend to wanna to have a lifetime of sexual activity and be willing to do that in exchange for some caution before we understood what was going on. But this was prime material, not only for the gay community to become 
conspiratorial, but, you know, it was labeled a gay disease. So it, it fomented all of the homophobia that was remaining in society. Um, politicians were keeping an arm's length from this because they were scared to bring this up as a way of thinking about um, public health and prevention. There was no area where people felt safe talking about this without really having to hold the line with being honest and authentic and paying attention to the science. Um, so, so you're talking about a time when no one felt safe talking about it, and, and, but you were talking about it. And yeah. can you walk us through what you realized, what you were saying, and, and how did people react? Well, I think the reactions were all over the place. I mean, I found a cohort of like-minded people I was part very early on. I, I joined a group at the American Psychiatric Association, an allied group called what is now called the Association of Gay and Lesbian Psychiatrists, which includes transgender, bisexual, and so forth. Um, so I found a cohort of like-minded people who wanted to really think about this and, and figure out how are we going to deal with the decimation that we were anticipating, which came true, unfortunately, in the community. The right wing, um, the anti-sexual people in the country, people like Anita Bryant, if you want to go back and Google her, um, you'll get a sense of what she did with the fomentation of homophobic slurs about gay men and what their sexual practices were like. Um, so there was no group of people that weren't thinking and feeling a great deal about this epidemic and scared. Gay men were scared. And when you think about you know, quickly after sex was uh, identified as the mode of transmission, IV drug use, so blood transmission and, and so forth. Um, you know, I, I didn't have a choice in being who I was at the time. I'd grown up being told that, you know, you did what was right um, and you paid attention to the truth and you acted authentically. And I had spent a lot of years coming out, dealing with all of those issues as a gay man back in the you know, late 60s and 70s. Um, I didn't feel like I had a choice but to be involved with this. It wasn't something that I could pass by because I knew my friends were going to be infected with this and die. And that tempers your sense of wanting to flee. I also, you know, I was noisy about politics and I was noisy about injustice in the world way before AIDS came on the scene. My mother used to say that if I hadn't gotten noisy and upset about AIDS, I would have found something else to be adamant about. So I think it's part of my personality to, to see what's out there and to say, we got to do something about this. Interestingly enough, you know, we had to teach people and not everybody who was reticent was anti-learning about it, but they didn't know a lot. We didn't know a lot. We were still putting the puzzle together. Um, and at the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, I found a cohort of people who wanted to move ahead and say, how are we as an organization going to address this? Um, but let me give you just another vignette, which I think really tells you why I do what I do. In 1981, there was a meeting in New York City put on by one of the medical schools, and it was called homosexuality, a decade of research. And on the panel presenting to an audience of probably close to 1,500, 1,500 people, there were people on the panel who were known to be 
psychoanalysts, um, people in the sexual therapy arena who were anti-gay overtly. And then they asked one person who was a gay man, a psychiatrist in Boston who had done research on homosexuality. And they asked them to present not as a researcher, but as a gay man, which was tantamount to saying, let's have a conference on women's psychology and we'll have all men present and we'll ask a woman to come talk about what's it like to be a little woman, right? That's the kind of context that I, I was feeling. So as a resident at this meeting, I was furious with the words that were coming out of these people's mouths, ignorant and unsupported by science. So I started a petition to ask that they would only accept questions directly from the floor, not from the cards that they passed out, which would allow them to censor what questions they were willing to, to answer. We got 800 signatures in about 15 minutes. People were so furious about this whole thing. And so they had to, and we threatened to walk out if they didn't do that. So imagine a conference put on by a medical school in which the audience would walk out because, you know, so that, that was my tactics from the 60s going to the Sheepshead Bay anti-Vietnam protests. Um, so we started to ask questions from the floor and I raised my hand and they didn't know that I had started this whole thing. And I got asked to, to ask my question and I said, how come you have a panel of people here who know nothing about the subject personally or have really studied in a scientific way what you're claiming to be truth and evidence? Um, anyway, that's that. But the, the part I wanted to emphasize is- Wait, wait, what was the answer though? What did, how did oh, they respond? They, they didn't respond. They basically said, well, you know, these are the experts and, and they just parlayed it, you know. Okay. But I got a clap from the audience. Um, what I did get two weeks later in the mail, a letter from a 17-year-old kid from a farm in Oklahoma who said in his letter, apparently in the Associated Press, there was a paragraph saying Dr. Marshall Forstein, an openly gay psychiatric resident at Mass General Hospital, talked about homosexuality and, but, and I don't even remember the rest of it. That wasn't important. What was important was that the cutout came in a letter from this 17-year-old kid from Oklahoma who said, Dear Dr. Forstein, thank you so much for speaking up. I was planning to leave my parents' farm with my shotgun, leave town, and kill myself because I didn't know that there was anybody else in the world who felt like I did towards men. Wow. And you, you can tell I'm... Uh, I, I wept, partly because of this kid and partly because how many other 17-year-olds have killed themselves because they were gay in the context of our culture. So I made a vow that I was not, I was going to be a dog with a bone. I was not going to let this go because you had to think about HIV AIDS as a sexual issue as well as a neuropsychiatric issue. You had to understand this was an issue for minorities. If you're just joining us, you're listening to KUCR and the show Let's Get Psyched. We're talking to Dr. Marshall Forstein, a psychiatrist that was in the beginning fight and struggle of the AIDS pandemic and all the, uh, the, the criticisms, the voices, the different kinds of pressures that he received. I, I, 
you know, Dr. Forstein, I was just uh, listening to you as far as they, you, you were, you, like you were saying, you grew up doing the right thing. And it's, it's like this situation of such great import descended on you. And you must have felt a great deal of pressure as you were out at that time as a as a gay man as to represent maybe to represent or to to provide a counter to a lot of folks's uh, wrongheaded notions and and also as a psychiatrist a lot of intersections here and and it must have affected how you shaped your message and how you approached people can you talk a little bit about the pr- the pressures and how it maybe changed how, what you said well i i had to learn a lot very quickly you know i had to learn that you don't beat people over the head with stuff to make them change their minds. I had to learn that you had to embrace the differences in how people thought and win them over by explaining the, the, the human impact that this was having on people. And by that time, you know, everybody in the country knows somebody who's gay or lesbian or trans or whatever. They just don't talk about it. You know, so I, I worked with the fact that this is not unique just to gay people. And I said, you know, this is going to infiltrate anybody who's sexually having more than one partner. Uh, so we have to be on the alert that this is not a gay disease. And in fact, it was finally changed from gay-related immune deficiency to HTLV-1, HTLV-3, and then it was finally named uh, gay re- um, acquired immune deficiency syndrome. So we had to use the science. We had to use compassion. We had to make an argument that was based on our common humanity. And we had to ask people how we could avoid talking about this. What would the toll be on our culture, our society, and ourselves if we did that? I was fortunate that I had friends and my immediate family, my extended family, had been extraordinarily supportive of me when I came out and and throughout my career. So I was one of the lucky ones. And I, at this time, um, also had the man in my life who um, was an African-American psychologist. Um, And so we were in this battle together. He was very much in the midst of the AIDS epidemic with me because even at that point, the black community and Latino community were also being ravaged very quickly as well as the white gay community. You know, sexual orientation doesn't have a color barrier. Um, So I, I think, I didn't, in retrospect, I don't experience remembering that I was under stress so much as the people who were infected. And I felt I had some work to do. Um, um, It's an interesting question. I may be having to go back and reflect on this at another time about, I I think I was mobilized by the pain I saw in other people. And I have to tell you that 17 year old letter to me, um, I kept that, uh, on my desk, just to keep reminding me of what was at stake. Something that it sounds like you didn't keep was, but but that was out there was this um, publication in print in the gay newspaper of the era that said you were an anti-gay sex Nazi. Yeah, and and how did that go over? And was that I mean, were you getting confronted? Were people you know, did were people that you know having to choose whether they were going to be your friend or not? That's a great question. I, you know, the ironic part was that, as my friends would tell you, what are they talking about? Marshall's been more out in front about sex than anybody they know. 
because I have actually in medical school been teaching a course on human sexuality with the faculty and trying to really open up the dialogue because I felt like it was an area I, I couldn't understand in psychiatry how such a core part of our human existence was being totally ignored. Even today, the average number of hours in a psychiatric residency dealing with sexuality in general and same sex in particular is less than what we talk about schizophrenia, when only a small percentage of the population actually has schizophrenia, mm. but a very large percentage of the population has issues around who they are, what their gender is, what their identity is. So I, I thought it was funny, actually, that the Fag Rag magazine, which was the local gay newspaper in Boston, called me this anti-sex Nazi. Um, because I didn't take it seriously. My friends knew, God, what's this about? It, this was a political uh, posturing. Because, to be honest, the gay community didn't want to give up its sexual freedom. You know, the bathhouses were the heyday. Um, there was a lot of anonymous sex going on. People were exploring in ways that the heterosexual community was quite uh, aghast at. Although we also know at the time that in San Francisco, there were straight paths. There were other venues that heterosexual people were experimenting with multiple sexual partners. This was not unique to the gay community. It was unique to people pushing the idea that sexuality was more complicated and should be freer than what had been traditional in the Victorian or Puritanical age. Remember that uh, Mencken said that Puritanism is the lurking fear that somewhere someone is happy. Um, you know, we've not been very progressive around sexuality. Many of the cultures in Europe are far more ahead of us. So I, I think that keeping the eye on the prize, what was it that was at stake here? And as the numbers started to come in, uh, it was terrifying because you could, you could see the exponential way in which this was exploding. And by this time, of course, you know, we had the Haitian community that was targeted and we had the hemophiliac community that was targeted, the heroin community that was targeted, the, um, homosexual community, that became the 4-H club that was in the press a lot. People were identified by what group they were in as opposed to what behaviors they were doing, which was entirely the only way that science could make sense out of this. In, um, I, I want to ask a question about um, have we grown as a society, have we grown as um, in, in our reactions or to the pandemics really if, if the AIDS pandemic didn't happen in 80 81 but if it happened today or if it happened uh you know a few years ago would we have reacted substantially different do you feel like it it would have been better or just different do you feel like we have a new approach now you know i i think as horrible as this epidemic was we've had the AIDS epidemic not happened we would be in a very different place culturally in terms of our public feelings and laws about uh, same-sex people, same-sex behavior, adoption rights, freedom, because we are tending, we tend as a country to be a fairly um, private and uh, suppressive society around things like drugs and sex. We don't deal with them in the way that science would demand that we deal with them. 
So I don't think uh, we'd be in any better shape now than we were then. And I don't think we've learned a lot from then. And what's happened with the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, is the politicization of the pandemic so that it becomes a, a weaponized thing for certain groups to use against other groups. We knew about the COVID pandemic way before anybody was talking about it. And it was the fact of the Trump administration that suppressed doing what needed to be done at that time. Had we done right after we identified the COVID virus as a transmitted, easily transmitted virus, we should have shut things down and we would be in a very different place and we would have fewer, fewer, hundreds of thousands fewer deaths on our conscience. So I do not hold hope that we are a species that learns a lot from our mistakes um, when self-interest and greed and politics seems to be more important than truth. I mean, the whole idea of what's a fact, right? What was it like for you, Marshall, to see how COVID played out after going through everything you saw before? Was it discouraging? It was discouraging. I was furious. You know, I was furious because it was not just COVID. There were so many things in our country that we gave lip service to, health inequity, you know, racism. I mean, I think what will come out of the COVID epidemic and what will come out of the Black Lives Matter movement is perhaps we can't put the genie back in the bottle. But the question is, what are we going to do about it? You know, how are we going to structurally address racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia? How are we going to do that in a way that actually doesn't pit people against each other, but thinks carefully and logically about how are we going to survive as a species if we don't learn to take care of each other? So I, I was enraged that we had the tools at hand. We identified the COVID virus extraordinarily quickly because of the work that had been done on the Genome Project. We didn't. It took us five years to get the, or four years to get the HIV virus identified because we didn't have the kind of genomic uh, work that had been done, which we were able to apply to the, to the COVID epidemic. So, you know, we have tools now we didn't have then. We also have a different kind of virus. My concern is what's the next viral epidemic going to look like? Is it going to be like the influenza epidemic of 1918, the polio epidemic, the COVID epidemic? You know, of all the epidemics, the AIDS one was the easiest one to stop if we understood how people behaved and what to do about it. So, so it sounds like, I mean, I mean, and I'd love to hear if we get the time, I'd love to hear from you how, how people came around to the sexually um, transmitted. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're short on time, but um, the sexually transmitted idea, um, I imagine people got scared and then the fear took over and then they kind of came around to using condoms. Um, and in COVID, you know, th that hasn't seemed to have happened among people who don't feel uh, they should be using masks or getting vaccinations. How did you feel then? And how does that relate to how you feel now? You know, so we were up against uh, a federal government that refused to let us use dollars out of the Ryan White money to pay for condoms or to talk about anal sex. There was an edict coming down from the feds that if you were going to talk about anal sex in your, in your pamphlets, you had to pay for it with state or local funds. 
which of course was a real problem in terms of small organizations. So we were furious that the federal government was deliberately trying to keep information from the public and prevention efforts from the public. I think a lot of this is also happening. You know, the notion that people should have free will to be vaccinated, they don't have free will to get measles vaccine or other vaccines. They don't have free will not to pay their car insurance or to get a driver's license. This whole concept of free will is, uh, you know, it's a joke. So I am furious at people. And we had a case here in uh, the area that a 30-year-old man who'd been a serious anti-vaxxer got sick in the ICU and died, leaving his wife and three kids and a pregnancy on the way. How irresponsible can people stand to be? You know, I think everybody who doesn't get vaccinated or wear masks should be forced to stay in their house. They have no place in society which a human being would say, it is as important for me to protect my grandparents and my kids and my neighbors as it is for me to protect myself. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today, we talked with one of our heroes who's in the early fights of the AIDS pandemic, Dr. Marshall Forstein. Dr. Forstein, Marshall, thank you for joining us on this edition. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you also to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Yamaguchi and Alan Atkins. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. And you can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. If you like tonight's show, please follow us, post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. <laughs>